Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Andy Hibbert is CEO and founder of CarShare, the UK's first car sharing platform. CarShare is building a community that will enable the world to do more with less. With Andy and his team obsessed with delivering brilliant people-led experiences enabled by the finest technology. So after a hugely successful career in the travel industry with the likes of BA, STA Travel, EasyJet and Rita Mackay, what inspired Andy to dive headlong into the roller coaster of entrepreneurship? Without further ado, let's get into it. Andy Hibbert, welcome to the Astrology Podcast. Great to have you as uh, our guest today. Really appreciate your time. And as is customary with all things astrology, whilst uh, certainly we like to go into some length as to where you find yourself today, we also like to start with the early days and uh, and a bit of background to give uh, to give listeners a bit of context. So if you reflect back on the, on the early days, if you like, for Andy Hibbert, whereabouts did you grow up and what therefore was childhood like for you? Crikey, that's a deep-rooted question. Well, listen, Lee, thank you firstly for having me here. Yeah, really delighted to, to have the, the session with you. So, yeah, early days. I guess I was born in Southport and have forever labelled myself as a Scouse, even though Southport is not too Liverpudly, but it is in my book. So I, I guess I was brought up in Formby um, until I was seven uh, and then moved down south to Hampshire at that age. So the Scouse was taken out of me, kind of in, in, in I suppose, in some forms, but never in spirit. And I grew up, I suppose, in a village, um, Droxford in Hampshire, um, I suppose until I was 18 and then went off um, around the world and went to university. But even in, in the village days, I guess I was lucky enough in a village, there were small communities, but I, I kind of inherited and started like a car washing round at the age of 10 back in the day. So I think I always had a bit of hustle in me about trying to earn money and do things differently. And in those days, it was washing cars. And it's funny how I find myself right now working with cars. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of where I grew up. Yeah, went, went on to university, studied for an aeronautical engineering degree, which was kind of long and hard. And I wanted to become an aerodynamicist for a Formula One team. That was why I did that degree. But then I realized I wasn't dreaming about Bernoulli and his equations as much as others in the world might have been. So that was probably a bit too far fetched for me. But I did love businesses. And I think at university, I tried a lot of things. I tried to manage a band. I imported snakeboards, tried to help a snowboard company and probably tried to run a little bit before I could walk. But ultimately came out of university and then went back into where my degree sort of helped me get to with planes. So I, I worked for a time with British Airways. I worked then for several years with STA Travel, student travel. Went on to then put kind of travel and, and airlines and online together and worked for EasyJet. So, you know, was doing some great things with EasyJet back in the day when ancillaries were a big thing for airlines. They still are, but, you know, anything that's not a seat you sell because that's where a lot of money is made. And I think everyone has seen that. Now, you know, to get on a plane, you've got to pay to put a bag in the, in the, in the hold and board the plane. But then I suppose before I am doing what I'm doing now, I went to a wonderful business called Reader Mackay, which is corporate travel. And that was really flying high performance professionals all over the world, lawyers, insurance brokers, finance brokers for nine years to kind of led that business through a large stage of growth, you know, wonderfully successful business and always will be. But I guess that's where this idea came, to, came to roost. That's because where, where I am now with car share. So that's kind of the evolution from, birth to now and in a short hopefully space of time 
If you go back to those days in in Droxford and the car route, the washing cars, you know, had you even that early, you described that early experience around kind of entrepreneurship and managing a band, doing all sorts of things. Where had that stemmed from? Was there a sort of influential figure who kind of instilled in you that sense of entrepreneurship? Do you know what? It's, it's interesting because my, both my parents are academics. So they weren't like a business oriented, very successful academics, you know, doing various things. I just think I had, I just had a, a glint in my eye about trying to make things work. So, so make things work. Entrepreneur is about making a business, about making money. But even in the day, I suppose, when, you know, I started these car washing rounds when I was 11. By the time I was 13, I bought a really nice separate stereo system. It was impressive and it was kind of like the rewards for the efforts. And it was special to me. And it was, you know, I was very young at the time, had a wonderful sound system. But then my dad kindly gave me a really old car, which was a Beetle, 1973 K-Reg Beetle that didn't work. And it was, again, how can I make this work? So I spent two and a half years trying to take it apart at that age and put it back together again, get some help from people. And to me, it was about finding opportunities where you could make things and do things. And I suppose that's when I thought, actually, you, if you put your mind to it, you can do a lot of things. And there was a lot of opportunities to make things work, make things happen, make things go. I think it was self-seeded, but I was given the kind of latitude, and particularly in a village. You know, I was not allowed to run feral, but I was allowed to do a lot of things because they were there. So I think I was given the freedom to try, freedom to do. My parents certainly enabled me to go out and do these things and, and encourage me to do these things, even at an early age. You know, it was, it was just t- killing time in a village. I guess I had pl- lots of time cut off probably from where you are in a city where there's lots of distractions, lots of mates around in a village. At that age, you don't have much transportation to get from A to B from a village. And so I guess I filled my time doing things like that. And, and actually, it was exciting because I, I owned it. I, I did it. I delivered it. So that it was probably self-seeded, but given my environment, it allowed me to, I had so much time, it allowed me to get in, get in and do these things. And what about engineering? Where did that, you know, that, that love for cars, that, that desire to get underneath the hood of a, of a K-Reg Beetle and, and fix it? Had that been, had you always had a sort of practical, taking things apart, pulling things together type of, of mentality and experience as a kid? I think I, think I genuinely just like to, to do that. I, I suppose I set myself challenges and actually... Why a Beetle? I think a Beetle was a classic car back in the days of yeah. Herbie. And I just, I just loved Volkswagen Beetles. I love the story of the Beetle. I love what it represented. It was you know, based on a Porsche. There was a lot of great things around a Beetle. And in those days, Beetles were quite simple. They were a flat four engine. So they weren't terribly... Like today's engines and motors are horrendously complex and all electronic. But in those days, it was a good, a good way to get into it. And there was something quite cool and cultish about a Beetle. And I thought, if I can get this to, get this to work... And I can get it to go and I can then drive that car. I, I can have a car and I can feel quite proud about the fact I fixed it. So I, I think I just set myself to, I, I can. And I think I, I'm a very logical person. So I guess where that led me to in, in logic, I, I guess, I, you know, numbers, right and wrong, black and white, engine starts, it doesn't start, cars work, they don't work. That sort of practicality has always been part of my DNA. Did you did you pick up? I, mean, I guess I guess today somebody you know we we jump onto YouTube and watch a video of, of of these sorts of things. But back in the day, I would imagine perhaps some, something like a Haynes manual or something of that. Did you literally put, pull a manual off a shelf or out the library and then off you go? Uh, so I had two Haynes manuals. <laughs> One there was an older car type from 1958 to 1973. I remember it now, 1974 to 19 whatever. So I had two Haynes manuals. 
There was magazines, Vox World was a famous magazine for, for doing cool stuff to Beatles and Volkswagen, VW Motoring was the other. So I, I've still got them today, actually. So I, I, I built myself a library of how-tos. And they were like, you know, whether you wanted to look smarter, to do different things, to do clever things, or just to get it going. How'd you take a gearbox out? How'd you take an engine out? And actually, I, we were talking um, with people here today. Taking an engine out of a car is no easy thing. You know, you crank it up and a, and a Volkswagen, you had to drop it out of the bottom. But the very, I can remember the very first time I managed to do that myself by putting the car up on blocks and bringing the engine out and dropping it down slowly on and then taking it out and then changing the flywheel, changing the clutch. Just because you could do those things and putting it back together again, actually turning the engine and think, crack, it's, it's working. That's quite, I quite like that. So I was quite enthused by the fact that you could do these things and experiment. And, and actually, to be honest, in the early days, I was only driving up and down a driveway. I was going 30 meters. It's not like I was driving on a road at that age. I couldn't, obviously. But um, being able to sort of do that little thing, you know, in a cul-de-sac where there's, you know, you, you back in the day, I suppose, you, you could do those things. There was no big bother about. And the neighbors used to laugh at me. Oh, there goes Andy up and down the, the cul-de-sac again in his car and, you know, reversing forward, backwards. I mean, getting to third gear was, a, was an exciting thing when you're 14, just because, you know, you've got that much time to do it. But I just, I just used to love it, the freedom of doing those things and the ability to sort of practice, try, you know, if it didn't work, try again. It's, it's quite an issue. What do you think you gained from that experience? Understanding about, I suppose, if at first you don't succeed, try and try again. I mean, a problem is a problem but until you find the solution. So those, that type of approach about, you know, understanding there are fixes here. I just don't know how to do it yet and I've got to learn how to do it. So that kind of tenacity, determination, there is a way, I've got to find a way. And at the end of it, of course, when you do that, the, the kind of the reward that is visible, that, okay, the, pr- the pride you have in completing a task in, in successfully doing it, as simple as getting an engine started or a car. I mean, it was, it was a dead car that we got going. And then, you know, we managed to sort of make it into a, into a car that became my car when I was 17, if you like. So just the satisfaction, you know, completing, finishing, idea, concept, okay, get it going. Simple as that, really. Even, I suppose for car washing, it was more immediate. You know, I started car washing. In those days, I was getting 50p a car. I then upgraded to start, start to polish cars, got £1.50 for that and a polish. I then thought, you know, so how can I make more money out of the same object by adding more to it? So you, I suppose you call that diversifying your services. <laughs> But I guess you, you understood what people wanted. You know, they like clean cars. Okay, I'll do the inside as well. Start hoovering cars inside. So it became a valet then. So the full kind of works as a five pound. And I suppose that was still back in 1983, 84. So it's quite a lot of money for a kid. And then mowing lawns, all that stuff. How could I do more for this household where I can actually sort of spend more time in one place and get, get rewarded for it rather than spending time dotting around everywhere? So I guess it was a bit of fun, really. You're evolving. You're kind of, you know, you, you, you're, you're just doing things that kind of make things better effectively, but you're evolving all the time. And that was more satisfying, you know, just seeing the money kind of come in at the end of each weekend. I had a little money box. I can remember having your money in money box, putting it in a bank. My next door neighbor was a bank account manager. He was quite inspirational because he allowed me to set up an account really early when I was really young, when I don't think you're supposed to have bank accounts. But he, he set my account up and he, he wrote, I've still got the letter he wrote about, you know, every weekend I could see Andy coming down the drive with a wheelbarrow full of money. So it was just, I think, every, the community got behind this little kid that was quite enterprising, fixing things, doing stuff, helping the village by washing cars, mowing lawns. But I think that, that was it. You were encouraged, you were enthused by people, actually. They kind of, they, they blew wind into your sails because they made, they made it aware that they were observing you, but they liked it. 
they thought it was fun, but they also thought it was very enterprising. So I think there was that a lot of encouragement from other people, which, you know, in this day and age, everyone's moving so fast, it's hard to sort of blink and to, to wonder who's actually seeing what I'm doing and he's giving me that encouragement. So I think there was time in a village. You're part of a community and, and it was wonderful how they, they embraced it and I suppose enthused it. You mentioned Formula One as part of an engineer in Formula One as being part of that sort of early early ambition or direction of travel. Where had, the, had there been a love for the sport as well as the, the practical engineering kind of implications of what you were doing with the Beetle? Yeah, so one of my best mates in the village, uh, he was younger than me, was really into Formula One. So this is, again, the same kind of age, 13, 14, 15. So I got into watching it with him. And then latterly, once we had passed our test and we went, we were at the age where we could go to the Grand Prix, we for several years went to watch, you know, Formula One properly. So we went for the whole weekend, Thursday through till Sunday, camped up there. Um, and we, we were quite again, apt at getting into places where we probably shouldn't be. So we spent most of the weekend in the paddock. At one point, we, even have Nelson, we had Nelson Piquet's pass to get into the driver area. So we, we managed to get into the driver areas. And actually, to be honest, so in those days, I suppose at 15, 16, we were following Formula One. So Benetton was a big team. I remember William Towett was the chief designer for Benetton. At one point, I said I was his nephew to get into the paddock. So we used to blag a little bit to get places <laughs> to meet the team members. But I've got pictures with Senna, Pross, PK. You know, we, we were really amongst it in those days. I think that it's so, it's so, it's so different and so big. And obviously security is a big deal. Of course it is. But um, everything was a lot closer those days. It was probably less popular, but, but we really were amongst it. And we, we, were, we were following it with every innovation, every design, anything that changed the faster cars. And that was an early age. So I had a passion for wanting to be part of it from those ages, I think, from that stage. And I guess I became good at mathematics. I found I was quite good at mathematics. I knew that that was all about that sort of thing. So I think I thought, let's try, let's try and roll the dice and throw my way into, into that, that area of, of engineering. So let's try and do engineering with, with a lean on aerodynamics, which is all about flow of cars. And I think I over, I oversimplified the, the, the design kind of attractiveness you know you can imagine a wind tunnel with aerodynamics and wind flows it looks great when you got but then behind it is just a bunch of numbers and equations and, and you know to me that was like well that sounds quite boring actually <laughs> the, 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 the the great stuff about the visualization was exciting but the doing was like that's really hard so that that love kind of after i went to university and did it as a degree i suddenly realized that i didn't have the passion to be what i thought i wanted to do and what was driving inside was still this, this fire, which was igniting all the time about wanting to, to start businesses, wanting to do things, wanting to, to, to build things and more commerce than, than engineering by a mile. And so I just wanted to find a way to, to, to try and enrich that and try to start. But of course, you know, when you've grown up and then you've really got to pay your bills and you've got to make money, it's a bit more complicated. You can't kind of do it under the, under the comfort of your parents' house where it's all extra cash and it's just a bonus. It's not like you're using the cash to pay for your mortgage. So then it's kind of like, how do you make the two things work effectively? So I, I guess, but that was, that was why I got into it. And that's why I suddenly realized, you know, unless you're dreaming and you're passionate, it's like anything, unless you really enjoy it, you're not going to really love doing it. So why do you want to force yourself to, to do it effectively? So at the end of my degree, it was a crossroads. It's like, actually, I, I'm not that person, but I know I've, I've got a real passion for, for, for doing things and creating things disrupting i guess is kind of where it ended up being 
I, I was intrigued that, and, and if I read this right, that as part of your degree, you did aeronautical engineering, you studied aeronautical engineering with French, which which struck me as a a really interesting combination and perhaps and not to draw any assumptions on your subsequent career in the travel industry, but had you always this sort of allied with that engineering interest, uh, sort of a, a, an interest in, in, we're a similar age, Andy. So growing up in the 80s, you know, I think we had two language choices at school, probably French and German, but that was about as exotic as life really got. But did you have that kind of interest, that kind of wanderlust or interest in, in other cultures, other, other places? Some people used to say, look, you know, Toulouse is a big um, company based in France. They make, they make big planes. That's quite good. But the real, the real honest answer is my mother was a French and German teacher. And oh, I okay. picked up languages. So I, I, I loved French. And at school, I did French GCSE. You know, we were the first, I think, first year to GCSE actually back in the day. But in, which, in which case, we are the same age. <laughs> yeah, so, but I, I truly loved French. I love the French culture. I love the French people. You know, of course, he had desires on a French, a French girlfriend back in the day. But I think it was actually everything about, I think they call them Francophiles, don't they? I loved everything about France. It was a wonderful country with really lovely customs, lo- lovely food, and just everything about it. And I could speak the language because I think I inherited some of my mother's genes where she was a language teacher. And I, I guess I, I, I got quite good at French. And I thought actually, I, I enjoy French a lot, and actually, through my degree, I could probably it would be useful for me to carry that through as part of, of part of that degree. And, and if I'm being honest, to my horror, I got really good at speaking French, but the French part of my degree was um, called mécanique générale, which is French maths. And I thought the English maths was difficult, but <laughs> the French maths—I <laughs> just couldn't understand what it was what it was about. It was like. It was, it was one of those things where I, it was just mathematics, but it was so off the charts in terms of why are we doing this? I, I never, I still today don't understand it. So yeah, so I, I, that's one of the things. It's like I kind of went down a path thinking, again, I'm just speaking French and I want to learn the language and I love the place and I'm doing French mathematics and actually, why am I doing this? <laughs> so, so what was, you mentioned earlier, you enjoyed a, a wonderful career in, in the travel industry. It's a bit simplistic, but the, you know, for the likes of BA and STA Travel and EasyJet and Rita Mackay, um, before we come into uh, launching Car and Away and all that's gone gone since. But in terms of w- what was the appeal of the travel industry from your your perspective as you reflect back? Well, British Airways was at the end of my university. I, how, what do I do from here? And I got a job at British Airways as an aircraft trader. So that was like, it wasn't a graduate scheme. It was a, a role that existed. It didn't pay a lot of money, but actually because I understood planes and how they were built and how they worked, I could support a team that were basically leasing and trading and selling planes at British Airways. So it got me into the airline that I thought was, you know, it's an exciting place to be. It came with the perks and a good, good staff travel. And I could go beyond here, but it's a good thing on the CV, right? But then I got really into the airline. I thought, God, this is really intriguing business. You know, how do I get onto the, the graduate scheme? So then I applied the next year to go on the graduate scheme. I think I, a lot of people applied and 13 got selected. And I was one of the people who got selected to, to go on the scheme. So I was pretty proud of that. And in that scheme, you go around the airline over three years or three and a half years into specific areas. So I spent a, a year and a bit in operations trying to work out how cabin crew and flight crew could be optimized. And it was one of those realizations when you see cabin crew that you know are working 650 hours a year, they're contracted to do seven, 900. But because it's bad planning or bad optimization, the airline can't get the rosters to work. The same with the flight crew. So you see all these kind of like, cost areas there the next job i was out in the caribbean 
So I was put out, lovely job in Grand Cayman. I was running the area for a year and a half. And you're, you're basically, there's three flights a week. And everyone says, that's all you've got to do. But you're everything. You're, if bags go missing, you've got to find bags. If, the, if British Airways want the air, airport expanding, you've got to negotiate how to get the tarmac lengthened by 60 meters and not pay for it. If there's a new product launching, you've got to create all the, all the marketing around that and get the, the island to get behind a new product. And so you, you, you become a little business person in your own right in that, in that island. That was interesting. And then, then I came back and I did a commercial role, which got me into, I guess, trying to incentivize travel agents to sell more British Airways. So I then connected to the wider travel agency. So I got to see a lot of the airline. And um, I suppose through, through that process, I saw a lot of problems that, that a legacy airline had within its makeup, just because of where it had come from. You know, it was, it was, a, it was a public company, it took private, and within, within which it had a good branding and status but the, the way it worked probably wasn't where it should be so that was I guess the airline side of it now the real reason for me leaving British Airways and going on to other things is because at that point in time we, we, we tried to start an airline so I'm not quite sure if that's it, that's for this story but I talk about that yeah, no but by all means I'm intrigued well I'm not quite sure how public I want this to be <laughs> in which case we can move on let's move this on is one of the, yeah this is one of those moments leave us hang with, I mean, one for another episode a cliffhanger if you like Andy's talking about starting yeah, an airline that, 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 that was then six years of my life trying to start an airline but that is another it's probably best kept as a, as a conversation that's not public and recorded and repeated no don't worry but, but it's interesting that they get, once again there's that sense of starting something you know that that's that that intrigue around businesses and is I suppose what I, what it comes down to I saw I saw a big opportunity, but anyway I, I left I left British Airways and I went to STA Travel and I was I was grateful because it was a role that kind of took me out of a big corporate into a smaller business you know from whatever thousands of people to a business that had hundreds of people in a nice team in the UK they were at a time where the the whole world was changing for them so their their closest competitor kind of collapsed that was USIT so yesterday travel was then on its own and then Expedia suddenly launched so this big online travel player made booking travel a lot easier and of course if you're a student you just go wherever is easy so yeah. kind of being attacked on all fronts so it's interesting trying to help that business launch an online product and also trying to trying to reflect how it was was in the marketplace that had just changed and the airlines were changing their game behind the scenes so everything was changing so for four and a half years I guess we, we looked to, to work hard to to reposition that business and to sort of make it more by giving it another channel online. And it, it was insane when you think that when we launched the online booking engine for that business and a lot more people than just I were involved, obviously, getting a result for, you know, that came back within 20 seconds was a miracle. And you think, how, would, you, would you sit around to wait for a result on a website to give you a flight result? It's like, never. But, but that was then. And it was like, wow, okay. So that felt quite special. But ultimately... I guess I started looking around and thinking, where do I go from here? And I still, in the background, had other, other visions of what I wanted to do. But, but then I guess EasyJet kind of approached. There was a position that was based in Luton that was head of their ancillary. Exciting because, you know, EasyJet was another frenetic business, a lot smaller. I thought, I've been to BA. Let's see what it's like on the other side. And, of course, EasyJet had, had started eating BA short-haul lunch. And I was keen to see what, where it was going, what it was doing. And I got in there and it was absolutely frenetic. It was, it was bonkers. I mean, almost over-optimized, where there were new ideas every day. It's like, I've not even done yesterday's idea yet. But nonetheless, the energy and, and the kind of desire to do new things was taking it like on, on a really rapid journey. So I was there for nine months. And, and, you know, it was ironic that in those days, and this is the metric that we, we focused on, is in-flight retail was already generating a third of the airline's profits. 
uh, or collectively a large, large amount of the profits. And yet we were, we were only getting £1.32 per head on the plane. And so again, like when we try to do little experiments, well, how do we get more money out of each passenger? You know, sell more coffee, sell more tea, sell more duty-free. We, we had the idea of saying, well, look, you know, I think Alan Sugar said it's, it's the sizzle that sells a sausage, which is like you cook a sausage on the road and someone's going to smell it, they're going to want to buy a hot dog. It's like a coffee store selling coffee. There was an oven on the plane that was only for crew meals. And we said, look, can we try an experiment where we get paninis? It will only fit 12 over the course of the flight, but why don't we try and heat paninis and sell hot paninis? Because the smell of the hot paninis are going to sell the paninis. And we, we utilized the crew oven and it worked. Literally, we, we sold all the pennies every flight. So then, of course, that piece of work then was a big retrofit that was beyond my time. But they then, of course, they sell hot food all through the plane now. And it's a big piece of their... But you see how that evolved. It was literally, let's yeah. just try this because we can. The crew meals are done in the last half an hour. We've got an hour probably every flight just to heat up some pennies and, and see if we can sell them, put them on, put them on the roster. But I, I love that because it, in a big airline, even Egypt was big then, it was just like, how can we try and hustle innovate things quickly you know that's that's shipping things quickly to try and experiment without the confines of a million people making decisions and easy it was like that they were they were actually more able to do things like that because they were full of bright people trying to do things better every day so i i love that role actually but but i suppose the combination of i was living in southwest london it was in luton we just had a baby my wife and i sarah and I remember one journey from Luton back to southwest London took me three and a half hours because every bridge was closed and every motorway was jammed and it was just horrendous. I thought that I can't live like this. So at the time when a job opportunity came up at Reed and Mackay, which was a private equity backed, they just bought into a, a wonderful family um, owned business. And they wanted me to come in there and, and probably help to become the successor to, to the founder's son to take it on and, and sort of drive, help to drive the business forward and relinquish the, the, the current sort of family member in charge so he could exit and do less of, of, of work there. Um, and that was right in the centre of London. I thought that, that's much better. And I guess it was, it was a good opportunity to learn about how a business can grow that has a really solid foundation but, and, but great ambitions but needs more structure in it to grow, uh, has investment behind it. And I guess that's why I landed for, for nine years and, and learned an awful lot. I mean, all these processes that I'm talking about, actually, there's a lot of learnings going on. There. Absolutely. So coming into a, fa- a family-run business that's just been taken, uh, taken on by a private equity house changes the gearing of that business quite, quite significantly behind the scenes because it, it now needs to grow for a reason, not because it can and because it's good and it's solid and, and, and people love it and customers love it. It will grow organically. It's because it's been invested in and they want it to grow faster than just organically. Uh, and actually with a bit more structure, it probably can. So it kind of taking that business and leading that business with some wonderful people on a growth rate probably of 20% a year that then it was sold twice through that process. It just, it just taught me a lot of things about kind of the stresses and strains of the fast growth rate businesses that have a really deep-rooted, strong culture and that culture kind of gets, gets strained somewhat as you grow. And it's strained because you get bigger. You, can't, you haven't got as much love for all the family. So, you know, you can't be the same person to 400 people as you could do to 100 people. Uh, but also the kind of opportunities to say, if you have got a, a successful business and you, you're careful about looking after things through that journey, you can grow successfully. But you have to accept that changes, changes are there. But yeah, so that was, that was a really exciting journey, Reed and Mackay. But that's where, I guess, the idea really happened for, for what was car and away now is car share 
Yeah, absolutely. Where did that, where did the initial, where did the idea stem from? So Reading Mackay was so successful at, at what they called high touch travel. So it was kind of rather than just being a booking agent and booking what you asked for, we worked really hard to find the, the best solution that saved you money, saved you time and kept you moving. And it was proactive and preemptive. So if you're a business traveler going to America, what's really important to you is what seat you sit on because you need to work in privacy and you don't want to be near noise. Getting seamlessly from the airport to my hotel and, and people, you know, I know who to look for, they know who to look for me. I'm not waving around an airport wondering where my board is. And then being in a hotel that's close to my meetings, where it needs to be, and everything happens like clockwork. And they do it very successfully. And, and the, if it went wrong and the ca- flight was cancelled or weather system moved up the East Coast and the airport shut, the traveller would never know there was a problem. We just, we'd have moved them to a different airport and got their transport orientated to get them home. So we looked after everything. And, and they love that because that meant that, you know, if you get to a ticket desk and you go and say, look, where's my flight? And they tell you it's cancelled. You know, all the other passengers would then run to the other plane that's operating. So if a Virgin flight cancelled, for example, and BA was operating, there's about 20 seats left. 350 people are scrabbling to the ticket desk to get on that plane. We say to our travellers, we've already got you sorted on that plane, don't worry. You've been booked on it for the last six hours and this is your seat because it's close to what your preferred seat is. So we had so much preemptive capability. So what happened was where these people were flying in business class flatbeds, staying in five-star hotels, getting chauffeurs to and from airports, and we managed all the things around it, all of a sudden, they started asking for Airbnb. And I was so intrigued about, it wasn't just one out of a thousand, it became like 2%, 5%, and like, what is this Airbnb? This is 2014. So right. we kind of, that's where we are right now. And in those days, unbeknown to most of us in the UK, Airbnb had grown out of this philosophy, as you know, by sharing a house or, or a flat or, or a room within either of those things to somebody else. I, I knew either there or you, you went the whole place out. And by that time, in 2014, that we didn't know this, but we researched it, Airbnb was bigger than the Hilton globally already. So Hilton Hotel Goodness. Group, all the room nights they sell, Airbnb was, was then bigger than the Hilton um, group globally. So it was becoming quite prevalent for people and they were latching onto it. So I, I jumped on a plane and, and I was intrigued enough to go and see some travel agencies in America to say, look, what is this thing? So I booked a, a flight, I rented a car um, at LA and I had five agencies to go and drive to just to talk to them about you know, business travel agencies like ours, but in America. So friends of ours that we could rely on to, to, to correspond and to collaborate and so on. Anyway, turned up the airport, got off the flight. I went to pick up the car, big queue. I waited about an hour and 20 minutes to get to the front of my queue just to be told that my car wasn't ready. It will be some time yet, but I could, I could take a bigger car, but there's $200 extra for that. And I was like, well, how long do I have to wait? Well, it could be two hours, so we're not sure. I was like, what? So I'm a bit peeved, having waited this much time to find I haven't got my car and I'm spending $200 for a bigger car I don't need. Anyway, took it because I had to get on. I'm already late. So I took the car like most people do in those situations. They just forced into a, 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 a corner and they've got people breathing down. You've got another 16 people behind you just looking over your shoulder saying, get on with it. And you think, oh, all right. So you, you kind of forced through. Went around to have these meetings and was overwhelmed by the penetration of Airbnb in the business travel sector, but also picked up that it was, it was so popular in the leisure sector. And it was really because what I understood from it was it wasn't just it was new. It's because people, some people who travel on business all over the, the world and do it frequently like 60 times a year, they actually get quite lonely. You know, and they feel a bit awkward when they spend the night in a hotel, they go down to, to dinner in, in, in a hotel restaurant and it's nicely dimly lit and the, the piano is playing and all they're having is a, is a three-course meal sitting on their own and they feel a bit of a lemon. 
And, and people actually chose that they, they now had the option to say, look, I can go and get a, a house downtown in Manhattan or a flat. I can do my business meetings in Manhattan. I can go stay here and I can order a pizza from Papa Joe's and I can just be like home from home. I can relax, put my feet up on the sofa, watch some telly. And it's not such a structured kind of, kind of five-star experience because I don't want that sometimes. And it just gave them choice and people were opting and choosing to do something different. So it was becoming important that you could offer that as a product set. So I got to the airport and again, I handed my rental car back. Next problem, oh, there's a scratch on the bumper. That's another hundred or so dollars. I was like, I didn't scratch that. And they said, well, well it wasn't there when you took it. And I said, well, how'd you know? And they've got photographic evidence. I haven't got any evidence to prove it wasn't me. And I haven't got time to muck about. So another hundred dollars down and I'm really, this is now insane. I don't know, you know, how this experience could have got any worse, but I'm cross. I didn't get the car. I wasn't compensated for that. I had to pay more money for it. And now there's a little scratch on the bumper, which you could polish out if you really cared for it. Um, but I was charged extra for that. And, and, and to learn also further to that is that many of these companies, or some of these travel um, car rental companies, they incentivize staff to find those scratches. So there's a definite mm-hmm. kind of like, um, we, I suppose maybe that's not for air, but it kind of, it got under my skin. So anyway, I'm at the airport and um, I'm contemplating these two phenomenons. Airbnb, incredible, sharing business that's grown massively bigger than the Hilton just by sharing a single room or a flower house of somebody, but there's hundreds and thousands of them. And car rental, like how this service has never innovated in the last 40 years. It's still full of queues, extra charges, never getting what I want. This car is similar, never getting even a similar car. And I was really kind of like, this, this can't be the case. And as I was having these two thoughts colliding, one that's a rubbish service of car rental and the other which is a innovative new opportunity to, to stay in a property um, that was someone else's. I looked out the window and just saw this sea of parked cars. It must have been 10,000 parked cars sat at the airport. And I just went, wow, crikey. Why can't we share these cars here right now just like people are sharing their homes? Because their homes are empty, their houses are empty, their flats or their spare room is empty. These cars are totally empty. They're not doing anything. And yet I can give this particular Toyota Camry, this is exact car to Lee. So forget this car or similar. There's 10,000 cars here that could be rented by Lee if I can enable them to share them. I just got so excited. I literally thought, God, how many cars are parked around the world right now at airports? It must be millions. Millions. Yeah. Probably 10 times the amount of cars across the car rental industry. And they're already here. They're already here doing nothing. Why can't we put them to better use? So, so I literally, on the plane back, um, I kind of wrote a mini business plan about how could this work? What could we do? And then I researched it further. And that's when I really found out, Lee, that um, I guess the, the biggest opportunity was when you realize that cars aren't just parked at airports gathering dust. They're parked most of their life, sat on our streets and driveways outside our houses 96% of the time. And you think, oh, this is insane now. There was a, there's a, in those days, there was a billion cars on the planet and hardly none of them are being used. And yet we're, we're literally wallpapering our planet with unused cars. What, well, there must be a better way. And if Airbnb are doing it and changing mindsets around house ownership and access, there must be a business that would work for, for everybody around giving people the ability to access other people's cars in the same way. So, so the average car owner only uses their car 4% of the time. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And it's an average, okay? So if it means yeah, you're popping yeah. to the school run for 20 minutes a day, that's your 4%. And it kind of disrupts yeah. the ability to rent it. But, but many cars aren't used at all during the week. 
and just at weekends. Some cars are used more at the weekend, never at weekends. And some cars just aren't used much at all. They're bought as an idea concept and they, you know, work changes. I start commuting using the tube or bus or I bike or I cycle, whatever. And you think, oh, there are these cars that are literally sat around doing nothing, but they're costing owners a lot of money a year just to own and have the privilege of having them parked outside the house. And there's got to be a smarter way that we could utilize this together. And bearing in mind where Airbnb had come from and where it was going, we thought, God, this has got to be a big opportunity. So I guess I, I had to manage a position where Reader Mackay, you know, was obviously a great company and had done great things, but, but we had to organize that I, I exited effectively. So that was done with the business. And then after a transition period, I was then allowed to think about this permanently. So I guess in, in February 2016, I then set up, or January 2016, I set up Car and Away Limited, which was just the trading name. It was just a name of the business, Car and Away, Far and Away, just an idea that came up in, in, a, in a previous conversation. We went right back to the route saying, building a marketplace where owners could, could give their cars out to renters nearby is really complicated because I've got to build two sides of the marketplace. But if I go back to the, where the idea dropped in my head at an airport, that market already exists, doesn't it? Because at airports, there are millions of cars parked up every year because people fly away on holiday for one, two, three weeks. And there are millions of people flying into airports getting the service that I experienced to rent a car. Yeah. Queues, charges, not getting the car I want, you know, and the rest. I said, if, if I can convince an airport that, that we can create a, a new exciting parking product, you know, it's a new category, park and share your car and make money as a, and actually, in fact, your parking could be free. You can make a profit because your car is being rented out. And what's more is, how could that help airports? Well, airports in the summer, at Easter, at Christmas, their car parks are generally full. Pre-COVID, they're all at capacity. If I can, or we, the business can rent cars out to people, there's a big opportunity that that space becomes free again. So as an airport, I get capacity and I can resell that space because the car no longer exists in it. It's been rented out for 10 days. I know it's gone for 10 days. I've got 10 more days of space. So we could, we could start to build a really smart capacity solution to, for airports around parking where they no longer had to build more car parks. And that was really kind of ingenious. And, and Gatwick, as an airport of, 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 of choice that we went to and talked about this, said, I see how that could be a really successful operation. We, we'd like to back that, that idea. We'd like to, to work with you to make it possible. How are you going to rent the cars? So then, of course, we actually the same with, with a, a rental aggregator, rentalcars.com, we knew from, I guess, travel industry days. And we said, then, look, here's an idea. We'd like to get these cars and make them as inventory that can be instantly booked on your platform as an alternative to all the others you have. Um, we think it's a good alternative because it does these things. You can book it, the car and get the exact car, walk up to it, and you can drive away in 10 minutes. We don't have extras. We don't have counters, no queues, nothing. How about it? And they were also intrigued about it. And they understood where perhaps car sharing was going and would like to sort of see how we could, we could do this together. So they agreed to aggregate and, and if we could provide them content in a certain way through an API, they would sell it through their rentalcars.com website, which is phenomenal, really. The backing we had at that early stage was really, I suppose, powerful as an endorsement to the idea actually starting to generate more than just an idea. It's beginning to happen. So that, so that encourages even further. Say, so look, we've got this now. We now have to find an insurance partner that will allow us to do this, bearing in mind we don't own the cars. We don't know who's going to be renting them, but we want to show every single car fully comprehensively. How can that be possible? And we, we spent a year and a half talking to insurance 
companies about how to make it possible. And we always believe that being more transparent about how the cars are being driven would enable us to, to, to be better equipped to deal and work with insurance companies. So that's like having a tele, we call it telematics, like a Fitbit. So it then took us a year to get a company to give us the ability to, to work a telematics proposition into a rental-based business. And the reason I'm saying that is that most telematics driver behavior monitoring is around young drivers. And they aggregate the content every week, every Sunday. Bang, 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 bang. Score it up to date. How many miles are driven? Uh, you know, are you in, in the confines of the criteria? But we had to try and repurpose the telematics to say we want it done on a trip that could be for a day, a week, two weeks. And we want them to do it every day so we get an aggregate score so we can update people as to where they are. And we managed to convince an Italian company called Octo, another great company, who wanted to, wanted to develop a way to get to a bigger market through telematics. You know, young drivers is, is, is a saturated market. Obviously, we're competing to do that insurance market. But beyond there is... 99.9% of the mass market that no one's touching. And we were a route into it, first route into it. So that they, they agreed to work with us and refactor their platform to enable it to, to slice the data differently, to allow us to do rental based on trips and days. And with that, back to the insurance company, they said, right, we'll do this. So it was, a, it was one of those situations where you're, you're working with each partner to understand how it could work and what they needed to make it work. Airports were, were satisfied about the, the genuine opportunities to create sustainable options for customers and help a capacity situation. Rental cars like the idea of uh, rental cars like the idea of an, an alternative. We're not saying we're better. We could say that, of course, but we just know we're different. And it's, it, there, are, it get, there are there are options that allow customers to to get a, better, a different choice. And we felt it it was a it was a better choice, but that's what we would say. And then the insurance and the telematics, and then the ROC came on board. And then we had this ecosystem. We said, we can actually do this now. So then it came back to, right, we need to raise some money because everything is in place, but actually we can't really self-fund this. We need some proper capital. But when you have all those elements together in a bag and you go to a group of people who have capital and who see the genuine route to a marketplace backed with some, I suppose, substantial partners, it's a really lovely conversation because you're going beyond an idea. And I guess that, that whole system about endorsements and belief, that's the oxygen that I think startup companies need to propel them into the next conversation. And when you, you're backed with some serious partners like that around an idea that, that actually looks like more than an idea, it, it's a really big platform for us to then raise money. So that's how we got our first seed capital and did our first round because we, we, we managed to organize ourselves in such a way that we had built an ecosystem that, that was prepared to do it with us. Was there a pivotal moment where you think that had been instrumental to your success? The pivotal moment was getting the insurance product. And I can remember, because don't forget that took a year and a half. And of course, without it, you can't operate. And dealing with Octo Telematics, which was an Italian business, it just showed us as a business again about this whole persistence a problem is, is is only a problem because we haven't yet found the solution how can we get an insurance back to backers well they want these things well how do we fix that problem then so it's just that continual let's understand what we're trying to what problem we're trying to unlock and i can remember walking sometimes at the end of every week thinking we haven't got there yet we haven't got there yet and this is this is really hard you know it's taxing it's, it's tiring and, you know, when you have such a, uh, an ambition to want to solve a problem, but yet there's, there's, you, you can't find the solution, 
once we cracked that insurance using a telematics approach, which was genuinely sincere, that we wanted to put back to reading Macar, I don't forget, preemptive, proactive management of, of problems. We wanted to be preemptive and proactive about management of driver behavior. So if we spotted someone was driving the car in a way that we wouldn't want them to, to be driving, so speed, accelerating, cornering, so accelerating fast, braking quickly, we could see all that stuff, which meant that we could then correspond with that person via a text message to change behavior. And we proved in that point, actually, when we launched, that 89% of the time, we, we were able to change behavior. The scores got better. That, to me, was one of the biggest, the most pivotal points because it was the most difficult egg to crack. And we, we were a concept with some really smart people, with some really amazing partners um, that came together to say, all right, we're going to back you here. We, we, we like what you do. We trust what you're doing. And, and actually, we, we're, we, what you've put together is a really smart way to get into this market, but also probably overcome some of the challenges that we, we, we have around insurance, which is when we insure a car, we'd like to know where the car is, who owns the car, and what the car is. And what you're asking us to do is, it could be any car with anybody going anywhere. I said, but if you give us eyes on that car, and you can monitor how that car is, is being driven, you can, you can then intervene you've gone a lot further than, than most others have ever done in, in working with us to, to build an insurance product. What is it that you hope to achieve with CarShare? Well, it goes back to the whole premise that there is, I suppose, a, a massive pressure everywhere right now on, on space. Mm-hmm. And you think about, I suppose, the opportunities to, to create like an Airbnb of cars, which is a business where people can share their cars. But realistically, you're trying to take a lot of unused cars off the planet. You know, we are producing cars at a rate of notch, which takes a lot of CO2, which is kind of not good for the planet, that we put on our streets that sit there unused, which is not good for, for urbanization and space. So if you can imagine taking half the cars off the streets in the UK, in, in France, in anywhere, and repurposing that land for something better, you know, runways, pramways, walkways, even playing Kirby. When I was a kid, I could play Kirby because there was a curb I could see. I can't yeah. do that anymore. But using that space better and the cars that are left, for people to genuinely share those cars to do things, to see people, to go places. So there has to be some people that own them and some people that access them. But imagine if we'd be so much better off because we'd have more space and less cars. And with less cars, congestion would be much less because people aren't driving around trying to find spaces. I mean, in some cities, congestion, 25% of which is created because people spend 25 minutes trying to find a parking space. It's ridiculous. And we're a growing population, more people move into cities. There isn't any more space for any more cars. Yet unless we sold, unless we do something, we're just going to just grind to a halt, aren't we? Yeah. And we've got issues around public transport, public transport infrastructure, you know, the investment that's required to support that. These are all huge structural issues that governments the world over are trying to, are desperately trying to find ways to solve. Yeah, so I think we're part, we're part of the solution. We're not the only solution. I mean, there, there's lots of things that have to change, but, but enabling people to, to, to share and to, to build trust in communities that can access cars or can, can share their cars is such a big, big thing. And what's more, I think, is that in doing that, you enrich the community. And the money goes back into the pockets of the people who own the cars. So there's nothing wrong with companies existing and making money as a company. But, you know, this day and age, particularly, you know, the, the cost of living crisis, the net zero kind of challenge we have as, as a planet or as a, as a country, you know, or as a city within that country. 
all those things combined. So this is just such such a neat idea because I can put money in the pockets of people that need it, and by doing that, we can reduce the burden of ownership for other people, and we can help to, to unclog the streets, and through which we can stop the production of some of the cars, which then stops emitting and wasting so much CO two. So that whole thing, I know it's a bit kind of holistic, but you've got to start somewhere, and, and we Absolutely. really are passionate about delivering kind of a more sustainable enriching option for people where you know they can generate some cash and they can solve problems for others who can't afford a car they can access a car now and without you know having to worry about owning it in fact they can access hundreds of different cars so it's we're in i suppose there are so many things that we think we can do positively for communities and i suppose for the planet you know from top to bottom that's what's really driving us and it's just that kind of we have to tip that balance about getting people to see the car differently what is it that drives you andy i think the big drivers is seeing, well, firstly, the, the seeing, identifying a problem that we know we can fix. So, so there's a challenge here, which is there's a lot of unused cars here, but we could do something much smarter with them. So it's back to that. There's a big opportunity here to, to really make a big difference here. But also, you know, the, the challenge of trying to influence people to think differently and change their behavior, working, you know, with a really smart team. So, you know, as we're here, you know, in Izmir right now with, with the technical team, this isn't one person trying to change it. This is a lot of people trying to change it, you know, through creating great tools to changing people's belief and get, gaining trust for people to, to start this movement going and gaining traction, getting quicker. So that, of course, was the kind of burning desire. When you start to get traction, you start to realize that you are doing those things. There, there are people who are joining it and it actually it's increasing, it's getting faster. And there are people who love the product. Then you realize you're doing something that has a lot of value. Getting the feedback from, from users, from customers, seeing growth of, you know, 20, 25% month on month is, is a really incredible kind of like, you know, companies, I suppose young companies grow faster off a small base, but month on month, it's consistently growing that level. It's that feedback that you're thinking you are doing something right here. People are liking what you're selling. They're, they're, they're adopting what, you, what you're suggesting is a smart idea and they're, getting, they're becoming involved. They're pioneering with you. So seeing that community grow, you know, I think we've almost got 20,000 users right now. This time last year, we had about two. So it's just incredible that more people are joining, are joining in. And that's a massive inspiration that you're doing something now that, that is being... I suppose, driven by the community, not just by the idea. That in itself is, is more auction to say, look, this is working here. How can we make it work more? Where else can we take it? What can we do? How do we, how do we get more people to be aware of it? Because it's always the same thing. You know, the more awareness, the more people can see and benefit. But you have, to, you have to realize that in every business, there's always the people, the early adopters, and then there's the kind of that whole, that whole stage, isn't there, about those people, the innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, the, the, the luggards, I think they're called that we've got to go through each of those, those stages, but it catches. It's like, when does the next stage catch? And it's like saying, it's exciting. You know, when you start to see volumes growing and people using the service and it working, doing what we do with keyless technology is, is not easy. When we first did it, half the rentals just didn't work. Can't get in the car, doesn't start, doesn't stop. You know, not the car doesn't start, stop, but the applications don't work. The connections to the car doesn't work. And this day, you know, we've got a very high a hugely high degree of, of success because it has to work. But that whole journey of, of going from, from trying it and delivering it and it's not quite working as well as it is, then realizing it doesn't work on every phone, it doesn't work on every Bluetooth variant, it doesn't work on every car, 
So let's knock all that stuff out that we know. So anyone without a phone in the future, they should download the app and just tell them your phone's not compatible. All these phones are above this level. So guide them. Don't just tell them they can't. But that's just learning, isn't it? So you, you're learning so much to try and make things better. But that's the, whole, the knowledge you're building means that, that every day your product becomes easier and better for everybody. And I think we're, it's amazing. We're still at the start of a journey. You know, we're, we're a UK-based company, a great team of people from all over the world, basically, you know, you're from Bulgaria, you're Turkey, um, you're English. We've got testers in Sri Lanka. It is a great team coming together to deliver a product that they are all inspired now because it's getting this traction and more people are joining and making it work. And, you know, I think we, we recognize that we can go so much further with the product and make it possible for more people to engage and benefit from it. And that's the driving force for us now. It's like, this isn't just a product market fit test now. This actually does work. It really does work. And, and I think for everybody here, I think, well, okay, we are, we are five times bigger right now than we were last year. And we want to be sort of five or six times bigger in a year's time. You're getting some serious traction in the business then. What does success mean to you? Actually, it's a good question. We want to build a product that people love. And we want to build a product that, that, that many people can use and access. And we want to build a product that, that, that doesn't just work in the UK. That, that works, you know, pan-European and, and probably beyond there. So success to us means that we've done that, really, because we believe it can, it can do a lot of great things. And again, a product that can help someone in a village, help people in a town, help communities and cities, help, help a country and help a continent. You know, you don't get many opportunities where products can do that at that level. Mm-hmm. So we, we think this product has got a long way to go. We, we want to create as much we want to do as much as we can in the time we have to make it available to more people so i think you know uk pan-european and beyond and that i suppose there's a lot to do to get us that far but we 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 believe that you know doing what we're doing in in the uk and building out this marketplace in two or three years we can do those things across into europe who do you admire who who's a big inspiration for me so it's interesting the biggest sources of inspiration for me have been people who, are, who have come from humble beginnings through large persistences, determinations, and have, and have created success in their own right or for other people. So I suppose back in the day for me, Ayrton Senna was a big inspiration. I know he, he sadly died. If you look at kind of where he began in Brazil and, and how he, he, he worked and how he had to get what he had to, his family had to give up to enable him to do the things he do and then but how he was a very outspoken person even when he was successful for the betterment of his industry safety was a big deal I and mean, it's so sad that he died the way he died when he was a pioneer of safety in formula one and he was so vociferous about that sort of stuff but he he had to he had to endure so many hardships to get that far and beyond so that's that's a big inspiration to me about you know never give up and keep trying to make it better that i suppose i'm trying to think of other people actually off the top of my head who who is so that i suppose if i look at it into efforts there's people like that that i know of that have inspired me my my grandfather inspired me massively so my dad's dad he was a lot of things a lot of great things he was a builder but he also drove a lot of goodwill in the community. So I suppose where he lived in Chorley, so in Lancashire, a very tight community, but he did a lot for that community. 
So, you know, as, as everyone gets older, widows die. He'd look after widows because they were friends of his. So he was really, really kind and giving in the community. And I can remember when he passed, how just things happened. You know, we were, we were thanked as grandchildren by people we didn't really know. We were even given checks. So when, when people who looked after died and inheritance came to their children, they gave us some money because of a thanks to, to our granddad. So that ability to care for a wider sense of the community and do more for people is kind of enriching because that's the, the purpose. We're trying to get, I mean, I suppose in some respects, car share is a product trying to do more with more people, but there's a sense of wanting to deliver back that way. So I think that's been a big inspiration for me. I've always been touched by, by people's admiration of his kindness and how far that went in the community. And of course, I was, I was young when he passed. So reflecting on it more now, realizing how, how important that was now, how big of a deal that was. Again, it's just like, you know, there are lots of communities that, that still do those things, but we've somehow lost touch with some of that. I mean, COVID brought a lot of that back. So, I mean, that's a big inspiration. So I guess there's two different spectrums there, really. Because someone who's, who's worked hard and pioneered and, and come from humble beginnings to do great things. And, and, and then someone who's much closer to me. So looking back, what advice would you give 21-year-old Andy Hibbert? The biggest piece of advice I would give myself is if you're going to do something, just do that and don't try to do other things around it. Because I think when you, I suppose if you have a belief that's strong enough and you have a commitment that's strong enough, you'll find a way. But if you try to do it on the side, uh, as well as other things, it's never going to work. You know, I think that, that's always been like, you know, the attraction of doing this and making it work is, is, is great. But not if you're, you've got another job or you've got a degree to do, you know, so not at the expense of other things. If you're going to do something, really just put yourself into it and do it. And if it doesn't work, it's all part of a lesson anyway. If it works, it's got more chance of working if you put everything behind it than if you put something behind it. And I think I learned that. Um, and I suppose that's where probably car and away car share has, has got so much more success. You know, it's still got a long way to go, but we put everything behind this. We started the right way. We got the right team committed. We kind of got the investment right. We got partners right because we were really focused on it. And that is it. It's singular. It's a really ruthless kind of focus on that as opposed to let's try it. It's a sideshow. So I just say if, if, if you're going to start something, think about what you really need to do, get it going and, and put it all in. Don't try and don't do it half-heartedly. Importantly, therefore, anyone listening, where, where can they go to find out more? Where can we where can we find out more about CarShare if we want to get involved? How do how does that how do we get involved? Well, CarShare CarShare dot com. It's CarShare with a K. I always say that because people might go to the wrong place. The website is very open. We're recruiting regularly, but getting in contact with us is really easy. There's phone numbers there. There's emails on site, and if you feel purpose driven, particularly around sustainability. And you like the idea of growing, you know, within a startup, as in as a person growing within a startup, because it's frenetic, it's fast paced, we stand on moving sands, but, but we, we're able to stabilize ourselves a lot because we're, we're kind of agile that way. If you like that kind of environment, then, then massively get in touch. We're always looking for great talent, whether it's around, you know, development, technical engineering, marketing, you know, growth, service orientation systems. It, there's so much really going on and because, you know, finding great talent, you know, as you're going through, you know, growth is exciting. So, you know, I'd encourage anyone to look at it, see if, see if it, it suits you as a person, character, see if the purpose kind of lights you up. 
you know, we want to try and encourage more people to do more with less and to, to waste less and use resources in a smarter way. Um, and you care about the planet, then then absolutely, we'd love to we'd love more people to sort of talk to us and, and you know get engaged. So, what does the future look like for you, me or Carshare? Well, f- for both. Well, it's, it's interesting. We're, we're we're doing a retrospective today about kind of how we can work better together as a business, and, and I was so inspired by the fact that, you know, like all businesses, we don't do things perfectly, but there's a there's a huge amount of talent that knows how we can be better. So. I guess you know we are a position now where we're trying to be smarter about working better together as a team on the back of seeing this business growing at a rate of knots right now. So the future for us is really exciting. You know we're going through a new, another investment round this year. We hope to get some some bigger investment towards the, the, the last part of this year to then help car share continue and, and drive growth across the UK. But but taking the team and the community with us. So yeah, we, we're just kind of really near term next two years really excited we've got some coming out of covid was a tough time you know for everybody not just for car share every, for everybody but i think there's, there's now a kind of sense of freedom that we can do things that are unencumbered by that, that particular problem and we're just seeing that, that actually what we're doing is really starting to work so yeah we, we're sitting on a strong foundation now we, we know we've got some great traction we're going through this round but we're going into it, I think, with a lot of confidence because we can show people how it's working and it is really working. Exciting times. And it's a, it's a fascinating story. And I think that the, the purpose that you have behind it, behind all that you're trying to achieve with, with car share is, is you know, of huge value to not only clearly stakeholders, all stakeholders, if you like, not only you know, us as a planet, the, the human race, you know, the, the ever-evolving disruptive nature of so many businesses uh, and what they're trying to achieve is is, is fascinating, and, and your story is a fascinating one as to how you arrive with car share today. So I really appreciate you taking the time out to share it with us, uh, and indeed wish you and, and all your colleagues continued success because I think it's a wonderful proposition and one that I'm sure awful lot of blood, sweat, and tears though is going into it. Clearly, will continue to thrive and go from strength to strength. So really appreciate you taking the time out. Thanks for your insight and candor. It's been great to have you as a guest. Thank you very much, Lou. Yeah, it's been lovely to chat with you. Yeah, well, maybe, I suppose we reflect back in a year's time, we can do kind of another another session to see how we did do. But it's nice to share this story. I appreciate you actually, you know, doing that with us today. Fantastic. Great stuff. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say, any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.